Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Working Behind the Scenes. Coming up on today's episode, we'll talk with Tobias Buxhoyt. He's the founder and CEO or co-founder and CEO of Parcel Lab. He'll be discussing a number of different things in regards to communication surrounding shipping for retailers, why that's important and why, furthermore, it's important for retailers to own that communication process versus allowing third-party logistics firms to take that over. We'll also look at Lowe's expanding their outlet concept and an acquisition by Hold Delays. But we begin our show in the news portion with some updates from retailers about holiday season sales, most notably L Brands, the always intriguing L Brands. A reminder that you can follow us, rate us however you access us, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast delivery platform. Certainly your ratings, if you enjoy our show, help others to find the show. Also, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast. During the last couple of weeks, we've been posting some of our favorite episodes from especially early 2020. If you're a newer listener, some of our favorite interviews, especially from the early portion of 2020. So, yeah, let's talk about L Brands as, again, this is kind of the week where you get the sales updates, especially traditionally from those mall-based retailers, from those department stores. And L Brands, it seems like we cover them every year around this time of year because it does tell a little bit of a story as far as where sales fell into during the course of the holiday season. Despite the pandemic conditions, it was business as usual for both Victoria's Secret and Bath & Body Works. Namely, Victoria's Secret saw declining traffic and sales, and Bath & Body Works saw increases in traffic and sales. Now, as a quick preface, Leighton mentioned something to me back in early December. He was in a mall where at both a Bath & Body Works and a Victoria's Secret, and the latter, Victoria's Secret, much larger in terms of square footage, but as they were counting the number of customers coming in, they had capacity limits. Victoria's Secret had about half the posted capacity of Bath & Body Works, and Leighton actually brought this up to staff at both stores. There wasn't a reason cited for the difference, but it does seem indicative, certainly, of the corporation's larger focus, and this is something actually I noticed at a few malls I went to after Leighton pointed this out to me, Bath & Body Works, smaller square footage, but they were allowing more people in their stores versus Victoria's Secret. And you kind of wonder if this is a product of you know maybe safety concerns at Victoria's Secret, but also I think it's indicative of the fact that Victoria's Secret's fallen out of favor kind of at L Brands. Obviously, they've tried to sell Victoria's Secret off, a sale that would have gone through if not for the pandemic or might have gone through if not for the pandemic. And certainly, Victoria's Secret, in some ways, has been ignored for the benefit of Bath & Body Works of late, although that's something the new leadership team is trying to stress, is that they're really looking to turn around Victoria's Secret, whether that's for an acquisition later on down the line or to keep Victoria's Secret underneath the L Brands umbrella. Now, the numbers here from the holiday sales certainly favored Bath & Body Works, though as a whole, comps were up company-wide at 5%. Now, L Brands has always done a great job breaking down comps in-store versus overall comps. Bath & Body Works came through with a 17% comp sales gain during the holiday period, and that's measured for them as the nine-week period ending January 2nd. So, might omit some of those mid-October sales that we were seeing, but 
Even the store locations during this nine-week period in time saw a 5% boost in comp sales, despite the fact that a lot of their locations in malls and power centers where traffic was said to be down, according to third-party traffic metrics. Now, direct-to-consumer, basically e-commerce for Bath & Body Works, that was up 64% year-over-year. The increase in sales was credited to not only increased traffic, but decreased promotional activity as well. So fewer sales for Bath & Body Works, fewer deals, people buying more full-price goods. That also contributed to merchandise margin rate. In fact, in a statement issued by the company, they said merchandise margin rate quarter-to-date was up significantly over last year. Now, meanwhile, Victoria's Secret saw overall comps down 9%. Brick-and-mortar store sales were down 23%. These numbers apparently would have been worse if not for increased loungewear sales. Direct-to-consumer for BS was up 24% year-over-year, so that is a slight positive. CEO Andrew Meslow said in a statement released by the company that, and I quote this, the turnaround at Victoria's Secret continues to gain momentum. He actually credited refined merchandise assortment for things not being maybe as bad as what they could have been or what as bad as maybe what they've been in terms of the drop-off year-over-year over the past couple of years now. No question the e-commerce increase was a positive as we've seen other apparel retailers struggle to route customers to these direct channels. So to see that up 24%, that's a good sign for Victoria's Secret. Certainly you don't want to be all negative there. And when you look at macro level data, there's a lot that suggests that department stores, apparel brands, they're really only seeing 3 to 15% increases on the whole. Now retailer by retailer, of course, it's going to differ, but macro wise, 3 to 15% sales increases in direct channels. So Victoria's Secret outpacing this if some of the third-party data is to be believed. Now, as far as how expected earnings numbers stacked up against analyst expectations, things were positive because L Brands, of course, when they release these holiday sales numbers, they also revise their earnings estimates. L Brands now expects fourth quarter earnings of $2.70 to $2.80 per share against Refinitiv analyst consensus expectations of $1.96. So a significant beat on that number if it were to come true. Earnings, by the way, they won't come out for another month and a half. That's expected February 24th. Now, it's worth mentioning that sales for both brands on a sequential basis were down from strong numbers in earlier quarters. Of course, L Brands, one of the stores, and in fact, they did so very early on that closed their stores at the beginning of the pandemic, which Honestly, for Bath & Body Works, we thought was odd because they're selling soap and hand sanitizer, among other things. You would think that they are certainly an essential retailer, and I think they could have stayed open in a lot of markets, but they voluntarily chose to close. But it led to great direct sales in the second quarter and stellar in-store sales and overall sales in the third quarter. We don't put a ton of faith in sequential numbers to diagnose retailer strength, especially in pandemic times, but it could be argued that maybe this was the possible negative from the updates if you did want to take a negative slant at it. For example, year-to-date comps coming into this announcement at Bath & Body Works were up 44%, so it is a trail-off from those numbers, but it is reasonable to see their second quarter and third quarter sales as a bit of an anomaly based on the pandemic. Even their in-store sales up to this point were up. 25% year to date. I still think this is a solid holiday season overall. Obviously, bottom line is going to beat analyst expectations. Revenue is a little bit short of analyst expectations, but again, I don't think analysts knew that margins were going to be where they are for L Brands. So more of the same for Bath and Body Works, basically, both in-store 
and direct channels. And I do think there are some positives to come out of this for Victoria's Secret. There's a long way for Andrew Meslow and company to go with Victoria's Secret, but the fact that they're comping out 24% positive in the digital channel, that is certainly a good thing. And I'm sure we'll have more of these holiday sales updates next week, but we wanted to skip to a different story as Lowe's continues to scale up their outlet initiative with a planned location in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. This is something we have not talked about before on the podcast, and we haven't really covered it even during Lowe's earnings calls. But Lowe's has opened two of these outlet stores in the past two years. So their first two outlet stores, one in 2019, one in 2020. And here with this concept, they seem to be bullish on backfilling their own vacated location. So let's start by discussing this concept, since this is only Lowe's third outlet location that's planned. Now, the idea is similar to kind of a dent and ding appliance concept. This is a space that's mostly been occupied by smaller local chains or independent operators. These businesses rely on not only lower price points due to the nature of the appliances, but also the idea that the appliances are in stock for immediate fulfillment. If you go and buy an appliance from a Lowe's or a Home Depot or Sears or whoever you buy the appliance from, chances are very good that fulfillment could be a week or two weeks before it gets delivered to your home. It's not going to be something that's directly in stock. At best, you're looking at maybe three to four days if you get fortunate. Layton, in doing some of his behind-the-scenes research for the podcast, he actually reached out, talked to an independent operator of such a business this month, Denton Ding Appliance Business, about this concept. And overall, they sell as many appliances, this operator said, based on price, because there is a discount there, as they do based on availability. You get circumstances where, hey, if your fridge goes out, families need a quick turnaround on a fridge or a range, They don't have the time to be picky or choosy, and so they go to these appliance stores, they find something, and they can basically either have it delivered or load it up in their truck directly from the showroom or the warehouse. Now, there are furniture stores that will sell non-dent-and-ding appliances in this fashion, but generally speaking, that is a big hook for this section of retail. So, these spaces have to serve as both showrooms and warehouses because you will have thousands, potentially, of products that are in there versus just having the floor models because, again, you're ready to be able to fulfill what the customer needs at that point in time. Now, this is where Lowe's comes in. Obviously, Lowe's, at their normal stores, sell a large selection of appliances, and what they can do is they can direct lightly damaged merchandise or floor models to their own outlets. But You'll recall also that Lowe's closed around 50 locations in early 2019 after Marvin Ellison took over, and they closed Orchard Supply Hardware locations in California after that buyout, and that was early in Ellison's reign as CEO as well. In many circumstances, these spaces have not been backfilled. Lowe's either still owns the buildings or they're still on the hook for the leases. So in a few situations here, and we're talking the first in California, the second in Connecticut, they found it worthwhile to backfill their own vacancies with these outlet stores. So this is slightly different from what we talked about when we talked about Dick's launching their overtime concept. There were one or two stores that were in previous or former Dick's Sporting Goods stores or changing over from the full-line Dick's Sporting Goods stores, but most of them were in vacated H.H. Gregg's or other stores that went under that were about you know anywhere between 20 and 50,000 square feet. 
Lowe's, when they began the concept in October 2019 with the location in California, that was an old Orchard Supply hardware actually, is in Monrovia, California. They did move into a space that was about 30 to 35,000 square feet. I think it was 31,000 square feet, in fact. That was all occupied by the Orchard Supply hardware. Now, the Lowe's stores, of course, the Lowe's footprints are a little bit bigger. That takes us to this most recent location. It is opening in a former Lowe's. It's opening in a formerly closed Lowe's in Irving, Texas, and that's pretty much equidistant between Dallas and Fort Worth. A spokesperson told Culture Map Dallas this week that the store will stock more than 1,000 scratch and dent appliances at a discount. So there again, you have a ton of merchandise on hand. Additionally, the store will include various appliance-adjacent items like filters for fridges and that type of thing. Now, again, I mentioned 31,000 square feet for this California location. This Irving location that the Lowe's used to be in is over 100,000 square feet. So that's typical for a Lowe's footprint. So you wonder how much of that is going to be showroom, how much of that is going to be warehouse space. Will they farm out any additional space or sublet any additional space? That has yet to be seen as they are, again, just beginning construction on this for opening later this year. But the reason we're covering it here is kind of an extended looking ahead story, something to keep a careful eye on over the next few years because Lowe's has been methodical about expanding the concept so far, but it's clear that they don't just see this as a one-off. With so many leases in tow from these closed Lowe's and Orchard Supply hardware locations, it might be valuable for them to use the real estate to make something out of nothing, so to speak. If you're on the hook for the lease already and the landlord hasn't been able to backfill that space, and you haven't been able to sublet the space, well, why not put something in there? We know there's market share in this space, too, and although there are a lot of independent operators out there, Lowe's has something that they don't, which is that national brand recognition. They have that brand equity. When you compare this to, say, Home Depot, Home Depot has an overstock page on their website, but again, the business plan of these operators is predicated on quick, same-day fulfillment through in-stocks, which you can't really do through an overstock page on your website. So you wonder if Home Depot might take a few notes here and follow it up, even though they aren't really known for closing their locations as Lowe's has been for the last couple of years, so they don't really have that available real estate right offhand. Now, one other thing to note here before we close out the story, that Lowe's outlet in Monrovia sources appliances exclusively from other LA area stores. At least that's how it was reported shortly after it opened. That's likely going to be the same in Irving with the Dallas-Fort Worth area stores. Will Lowe's put one or two of these stores in major markets first so that they can certainly shuttle any leftover appliances, any scratch and dent or dent and ding appliances, whatever you want to call them, to these stores? Or will they establish locations based on demographics and available space? Looking at the Monrovia, California location, can't say that's necessarily demographic-based. It seems like it's as much metro area-based that they know that they have the merchandise that they can source there from the other Lowe's stores. Irving is a little bit different. The neighborhood they're opening up in, I'm not going to call it a retail desert, but certainly when you look around the area, not quite as many retail stores as there once were. It's a little bit, not completely, but a little bit of a lower income area than Monrovia is. So you wonder if demos maybe played a role there, but 
it's going to be interesting to see whether Lowe's decides, hey, we're going to put maybe one in Houston, one in the Chicago metro, one in the Kansas City metro, and so on and so forth, and just put one per metro area to kind of take up any of that merchandise coming from the stores in that area, or if they're going to be a little bit more strategic as far as demographics of the particular locations rather than focusing on the metro area. So handful of things to keep an eye on here, but I do think it's important that this news came out this last week and that Lowe's is backfilling some of their locations with these outlet stores. We'll see exactly how much this concept grows and we'll see if anyone asks the leadership from Lowe's about it on any upcoming earnings call. Now that we've talked some retail news from this last week, Let's talk to Tobias Buxhoit, once again, the co-founder and CEO of Parcel Lab. We talked a little bit in our first couple of stories about direct-to-consumer and Parcel Lab, a big part of that for many retailers. They partner with retailers like Lidl and Ikea, among others, specifically insofar as communicating to customers. And he'll talk about why post-purchase communication is so important from retailers to customers and why that part of the purchase process is such an emotional one for customers. With the holiday season behind us, pressures on third-party logistics providers aren't over. Volumes are still as high as ever, and major shipping providers are now dealing with the glut of returns that are flooding the system in the weeks after the holidays. As such, it is still of utmost importance that e-commerce retailers communicate regularly with their customers regarding shipping and perhaps more important, shipping expectations. Here to discuss this matter is Tobias Buxhoit, the founder and CEO of Parcel Lab. Parcel Lab assists retailers in sending branded messages to consumers during the shipping process and counts among their customers Lidl and Ikea, among others. Toby, welcome to the podcast. Well, Trent, thanks so much for having me. So first, just so our listeners kind of know a little bit about where you're coming from and your perspective, can you tell us a little bit about what Parcel Lab and the company does on a day-to-day? Absolutely. Yeah. So as you already mentioned, we are improving the post-sales e-commerce experience for consumers. So we're enabling retailers to provide highly customized post-sales communications, notifications ranging from communicating what's happening in the warehouse, throughout shipping, throughout returns, and even throughout warranty repairs or any other kind of service use cases. And our platform provides those retailers with truly deep insights into like all those processes. So what's what's actually happening so they can use it to then build communications around this to really drive customer satisfaction, loyalty, as well as trust. And yeah, we currently work with a bit more than 500 brands worldwide. Some of them are Ikea, Puma, H&M or Nespresso. And we do this today in about 45 countries and 32 languages. That's pretty impressive. That's a, a pretty wide scope of companies that you serve. So I know typically the process, if you have a third-party logistics provider here in the U.S., it's usually UPS, FedEx, the Postal Service, whatever. Typically, retailers are just sending out a tracking number and then the communication with the customer ends just there. But I know one of the things that Parcel Lab notes is that the shipping process is the most emotional part of e-commerce purchasing for customers. So basically, why is it important for retailers to keep customers apprised of these shipping details and shipping times more than just saying, hey, here's a tracking number, go find it out from UPS? Yeah. So here's the thing. They want to control customer experience truly end to end. 
because they know this is absolutely needed if you want to make your customers happy throughout the entire journey. And yet there's quite often this gap throughout these shipping processes or how we call it like those post-sales processes, so the warehousing, the shipping returns, whatever it is. And as you mentioned, this being one of the most emotional parts of the journey because the customer has already bought an item and they're now desperately looking forward to receiving it. It can get quite rough if you are not delivering on that expectation. Yeah, so you might be selling the best products at the best price, but if you don't control that, that last bit of the journey and most importantly, the experience around this, because you will have to accept that once in a while, your partners like UPS or FedEx, that they take longer, that there are issues, that's just natural. But if you're not taking care of the overall experience, then that can lead to quite a lot of frustration with the consumers or just missed opportunities of creating happiness. And yeah, I guess the reality just is that once a customer has purchased an item, it's just so much emotions and expectations around getting it that some people are very scared, something can go wrong. Some people are super excited when it will arrive. And yeah, if you then rely on the third party to do this in a very generic way or you're relying on solutions where you're not truly personalizing and individualizing this on each and every customer, you do miss out on quite a big potential to create further engagement with your customers. So one of the things I noticed when kind of looking through the Parcel Lab platform a little bit is there are different ways. Everything is basically white label, so retailers can create messages that befit them as far as telling customers where their shipments are or if there's a delay. What are some of the things in your experience that retailers have done in circumstances regarding maybe delayed or misrouted shipments, things that are out of the retailer's hands, but things that they're doing to ensure the customers feel supported on this platform? Yes. So you can guess that we believe in communication. If you're not Amazon and you're, you're truly controlling like most of those processes by yourself, you can make sure that you work the best possible way together with your, your partners. But in the end, you rely on them filling on what they've promised. And so the biggest and easiest way to improve this or taking ownership of this is when you are controlling and owning that customer-facing interaction, that communication around this. And so when we talk about delays, obviously it's, it's a big topic today and it has been a big topic throughout the peak season that things just take longer because, I don't know, products are not available anymore, they're not leaving the warehouse on time or it's on the last mile with your third parties. If you know your customer's expectations and customer expectations are usually very straightforward. Yeah, When do I get it and where was it delivered to? Yeah, Or is there any deviation or anything I should know of? Then all the data is available to tell you what actually is going on with each and every package. And so when you use the data and start connecting this with each and every consumer's expectation, you can create a super individualized and proactive communication around this. And so when something goes wrong, it still going wrong, right? There might still be a delay, but you're not just doing nothing. You're not just waiting for those consumers and then to come back to complain, to just create effort in your customer service centers. You just tell them, right? You realize early, oh, well, we're sorry. We promised you to deliver tomorrow. We just are not going to make it because FedEx is having this and that problem, but don't worry. We'll run it. We will take care. We'll let you know as soon as we have more information or don't worry. It's going to be delivered two days later, or maybe as a matter of showing our appreciation or apologies, 
here is a coupon for your next purchase. So there's many, many different things you can do when you start owning the communication around this and start taking care of your customers, even when things go wrong. So we've talked about the importance of communication, importance of making sure that consumer expectations are at least fulfilled or addressed. Now, aside from any potential dip in customer retention that you might have, what are some negative impacts retailers should be cognizant of regarding lackluster communication during this post-purchase process? So communicating directly around this or communicating at all is probably something where you can improve your service or your customer satisfaction. But it's not just about probably those issues that can occur. There's a very positive side to this communication as well. And this means that when you start taking owner, ownership of these processes and the communication and engagement around this, you're opening a totally new communication channel. So this transactional comes when you're talking about a current transaction from your consumers. They have a naturally high importance because everybody wants to know where's my stuff and when is it coming. And so that creates a natural interest in opening the communications. Yeah, So we see crazy open and click rates throughout these kind of comps and retailers then use this interest in consumers wanting to know what's happening to add bits of content around this. So content around the brand because they maybe want to increase their brand trust, content around maybe current sales or marketing offerings because they want to drive further sales, or maybe content around the products that this consumer has just ordered. And it can be easy things like video tutorials. My favorite example always is bikes. When you're ordering a bike, obviously you have to put it together when you get it. And it's not that easy for each and every human being out there. And so giving them a short introduction video tutorial, how to do this can improve the product experience so much. Yeah? And it's just one example how you can use this to create very, very positive emotions on each and every touch point that beforehand weren't really accessible because they were owned by a third party. Now, though you just mentioned it, it's not always about, you know, kind of communicating the negatives, communicating the delays and so forth. You did talk about at the beginning, you service over 500 different companies in all of these different countries here. And that gives Parcel Lab a lot of data surrounding shipping and especially during the holiday shopping season. So I was kind of curious, what was some of the data that Parcel Lab saw as far as maybe delayed shipments or misrouted shipments the like during Q4 of 2020? Yeah, sure. So we did see due to the just reach capacity of the logistics networks of just the people out there actually having to deliver the stuff that there have been many, many delays and problems throughout this peak season. In delayed shipments, we've seen an increase of a bit more than 30% compared to last year. I think overall the volume was 20% higher in shipments. And so if you're reaching capacity, obviously that just leads to delays in fulfilling those orders. So yeah, 31% on that one. We've seen a pretty crazy increase of 117% in misrouted shipments. So this actually packages ending up on the wrong track in the wrong region, because again, the capacity is just not holding up with the volume anymore. And then that's when mistakes happen. Yeah. And accompanied by this increase in deviations and problems in the process, we also a high increase in then notifications being sent out. And for us, that meant that we've sent out more than 200% more messages than the year before. 
Yeah, so you, you kind of get a feeling of how big that peak was and how big the impact that was caused by delays was on that customer experience. I want to shift gears a little bit because, you know, we've talked about just how important it is for retailers to own the post-sale communication with the customer. And I know a big reason why Parcel Lab believes retailers owning this step of communication is increased number of touch points per customer. I know with Lidl, for example, you note 2.7 new touch points per customer on average during this process. Why is this important for a retailer to kind of increase the number of touch points you have with that customer? So you only have this limited amount of interaction with each and every customer before they're gone. And specifically in e-commerce, it's unfortunately for those retailers very often that the customer comes by, is shopping, and then is gone. Whereas if you want to run a sustainable business, you need to make sure that you have a very strong and loyal customer base. So customers coming back more than once, kind of paying off the quite high customer acquisition costs that you might have seen for that specific customer because you don't want to like over and over purchase new customers. And those touch points give you the chance to create a connection with your customers, with the consumer. You can bring your brand closer to each and every one. You can use those touch points to show them that you are not just shipping products, but you're actually the one taking care throughout the entire journey. You can build trust and you can make those customers not just really happy, but also creating yeah, some kind of a like emotional connection. Yeah, when, when you start communicating very personally to each and every one, so they believe that you are the right partner maybe for the next purchase as well. It's a great point that often your most expensive customer is that new customer, so it can be a little bit more economical to ensure that you're keeping those customers around in that process. Now, you deal with not only logistics, but also communication and assisting retailers in this communication process on a day-to-day basis. We've just started 2021 here, going into the next 365 days, knowing that third-party logistics issues that we're seeing, as you mentioned, are not likely to be solved overnight. What are some best practices retailers should adopt when shipping outside of, of course, what we've already talked about? Yeah. So one trend that we clearly see in the market is that you just have to have alternatives. We just don't see retailers working with one single partner anymore. So if you're just relying on USPS, that's just not a very good way to start off the year. So we've seen all the brands that we work with shifting gears last year already, adding alternatives. So whenever one of those networks is struggling, you can shift volume and can make sure that products are still being delivered. But where we can help is, again, communicating and maybe even over communicating than communicating less or communicating not at all. And this is where we just highly believe or highly recommend each and every retailer owning post-sales experiences as well. So not just thinking about pre-sales, not just thinking about like how can we acquire customers, but in order to have a strong customer base and obviously like a very sustainable way of growing, that we need to own this end-to-end and this includes then this post-sales element as well. So we can only recommend and yeah, tell every retailer that they should be thinking about using this channel or building this channel to be truly personal and individual. And so by that, I mean like starting to segment your customers. You already know who the customer is. You know what kind of 
communication preferences they might have. So maybe some of them are getting an email, then another one should get a text message. And then you might have your own app. You know? So you might want to push updates for a certain customer segment into the app. And you want to connect this with all the cool marketing or content systems you already have and making sure that on each and every touch point, you're delivering the best personalized branded experience for each and every customer. Once again, Toby Buxhoit, the co-founder and CEO of Parcelat. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks so much, Trent. Thanks a lot for having me. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we thank Tobias for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, quick tease coming up next week. We'll have Mike Provence of 3x3. He'll join the podcast to discuss a little bit about the state of independent liquor retailers during the pandemic and how they've adjusted to pandemic retail and some of the third-party solutions that they are utilizing to ensure that their customers are able to shop with them. And of course, liquor retail is such an interesting category because it's so highly regulated and it's regulated differently across multiple different states. So Mike will certainly speak to those topics and that's a conversation that we're looking forward to. But in terms of our looking ahead story, I'm looking at a whole delays as they wrap up the acquisition or wrapped up this last week, the acquisition of Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct is an online pure play grocer, does business mostly along the eastern seaboard. You look at New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, even what you would call the, the mid-coast area, Maryland, Virginia, and I think this is interesting because obviously a hold delays sees some sort of synergies here. They were a majority shareholder in this particular business in Fresh Direct prior to this acquisition, but hold delays has done some very interesting things over the past couple of years to solidify really what they see as their wheelhouse on the East Coast. They've shut down or moved away from some of their Midwestern operations that they've had going on. And this acquisition, I think is a mark of hold delays continuing to endeavor to take over market share on the East Coast. And the reason I'm looking ahead at this story is you know, when a takeover like this happens or when a buyout like this happens and a company goes directly under another company's control, we don't really know how the company is going to leverage the acquired company. And I think back to, it's not apples and oranges here, but I do think back to a partnership we actually talked about a couple of months ago Kroger and Murray's Cheese. And when they bought Murray's Cheese, we said on the podcast, it's kind of unclear how they're going to leverage it. Why is Kroger buying this particular type of specialty retailer? Well, we see now in many Kroger locations throughout the country, obviously some Murray, basically cheese counters within a store there, many things that are Murray's branded. And you wonder if that's going to happen here with some of the Hold Delays' online offerings, if it's going to be branded under Fresh Direct or if it's a circumstance where they're simply looking to use Fresh Direct's infrastructure to assist in a hold delays' other e-commerce offerings as it pertains to groceries. So it's going to be an interesting story to follow. I think e-commerce grocery is going to be certainly something that is a topic on a lot of people's minds going into 2021 and even into future years. And depends on who you ask, there are some people that 
again, have tried e-commerce delivery services and haven't been that happy with it. And then you have others like Walmart customers, for example, third-party data suggesting Walmart customers very happy with Walmart's various e-commerce grocery options there. So again, overall, a topic to look ahead towards, but I'm just kind of curious how hold delays will fold Fresh Direct into their U.S. companies and how it's going to affect their overall market share in those metros. And again, talking especially New York City, it's a big foothold there for hold delays to be acquiring. It's not like they're new to the company, again, majority shareholder beforehand, but it's going to be a little bit different now that they're taking over complete operations of the firm. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. A big thanks to Leighton for doing a good deal of research behind the scenes for us. He'll join us on an upcoming podcast soon as well. For everyone else, I'm Trent saying so long until next weekend. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.